0: But we'll read our passage here, Acts five seventeen through 42. You can follow along in your bulletin or there's some Bibles in the back. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stormed by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all of the people, Stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care about what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus.
1: In July of 1963, 165,000 American men met in the bloodiest battle of the Civil War in the fields just outside the city of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Now, if you were to go there today, you would find these fields to be nearly the same as they were 160 years ago, but with one exception. Placed all around this battlefield, there are markers which include a write-up of what took place in that particular spot. And these markers are there to educate anyone who goes to these fields about the battle that was fought in that spot. So for example, if you go to the Big Round Top, and you'll learn about the 20th Maine Infantry, who repelled the charge of the Confederacy, who kept climbing up this hill time and time again. If you go to Devil's Den, you will learn from the marker there about the snipers who hid behind the large rock formation who provided cover for their comrades. Everywhere you go on this field, there are markers to educate those who go on the bloodiest battle ever on American soil. And of course, those who go and read these markers and see these sights experience and learn about the horrors of war, and perhaps, maybe even walk away going, there's something about this that makes me wanna change some of the ways that I live. Well, while many of you, or myself even included, have never been to Gettysburg to learn the lessons of its battlefields, most of us are familiar with a battle that wages in our own hearts. We are familiar with this battle. And the battle that I'm talking about is the battle for recognition and attention. And I'm not talking about being famous. Maybe some of you long to be famous. I'm not talking about that battle. I'm talking just about the battle that we have to be seen by those around us as people to be, oh, I like that person. Oh, that's a great person. This is the battle that I'm talking about. The desire to stand out and be recognized and honored by those around us And and this battle we will fight with our whole strength. Here's how we fight this battle. Perhaps we look to our job, and we wanna gain attention by doing a good job, by being recognized by our boss. Perhaps we wanna be recognized for our appearance. We look a certain way, we carry ourselves a certain way. Perhaps we wanna be experienced in a very positive way with our personality. Maybe we even look to the obedience and performance of our kids to boost our ego. These are the battles that I'm talking about. And here's the interesting thing about this battle that we all have. Sometimes we win, or it seems that we're winning. We do a good job. We get the promotion, and we get great affirmation from the boss and peers. Our kid becomes the star player of their team, and the thought crosses our mind, (laughs) people must think I'm the greatest parent who's ever existed. Like, who else has provided the greatest player for their team? And we just think ourselves so great. But if we've ever had this thought, we also know how quickly the battle can turn on us. You don't do a good job and you lose your job. Our beauty fades with age. Our joints lock up and we can no longer perform on the athletic field like we once did. Our kid gets cut from the team. And the battle that we fought so hard for seems to slip out of our hands. Of course, amidst the losses that we've experienced, we become more bound and determined to win the battle. And thus ensues the battle for the heart. Are you familiar with this battle? I think every one of us in here are familiar with this battle. Well, we see this battle played out in the lives of the Jewish leaders in Acts 5:17 through 42. The individuals had been recognized, these Jewish leaders had been recognized and affirmed by the Jewish people. But now that the apostles of Jesus are around and growing in their popularity, the battle comes to the surface of their life once again. At one point, they're so jealous of these apostles that they're willing to kill these apostles. What's behind their actions? Furthermore, what's driving the apostles who are so calm, cool, and collected in the face of such danger? Have they found resolution to this battle? If so, Wouldn't it be refreshing to know the answer to the question? Well, these are the questions that I want us to consider this morning in revisiting the battle that's played out before us in Acts 5. Perhaps we can learn something from this story and find conviction or resolution for the battle that wages in our heart. So just like going to Gettysburg and seeing the markers all around the battlefields, I've identified four battle markers from this story that we might learn a little bit about our own heart and that perhaps we might leave this text having changed a little bit, or resolved to change a little bit. So if you would go on me, perhaps you can envision me as a national parks director as we walk around Gettysburg Park. Envision me as a person who's walking you through this text looking at the different markers. So the first marker we come to in the story that's before us is a marker, marker number one, and it's titled Jealousy. Jealousy, marker number one. Jealousy, or the title, Marker Jealousy, is a place that commemorates the great jealousy these Jewish religious leaders had for the apostles of Jesus Christ who grew in popularity with the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, we learn about the popularity of these apostles from Acts 5.12. It's not printed in your bulletin, but let me read what they were doing that brought it about. The text says that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And then in verse 13 it says, while none of the people dared to join the apostles, they still held these apostles in high esteem. So the jealousy of these religious leaders was so profound, they were jealous of the esteem that these lowlifes from Galilee were getting, that they decided that they were going to arrest the apostles and put them in the public prison. What's behind the jealousy of these religious leaders? Why would men who are bringing healing and hope to people in great need be placed in the prison? And the answer becomes, from considering the heart of the Jewish religious leaders. I think we can say without without a doubt that what they cared more about than anything was being held in high regard by these Jewish people. Of course they achieved this high regard by, by teaching the people about the scriptures or the scriptures that they had and then what it means to be Jewish. But, but, but perhaps, and I think it's true, th- these men had manipulated the scriptures in such a way that they were the ones that had power of the people rather than the scriptures. And so the people would see the apostles performing powerful signs, but they weren't willing to oppose these leaders. And so they wouldn't go with them because the power of these religious leaders And so, in light of this power that was given to them by the people, these leaders found a great sense of worth and meaning from their power. They likely felt secure in the battle of their heart because of this power. But of course, in comes the popularity of the apostles, and now they're jealous of the apostles. And the battle of their heart turned against them. They couldn't excuse these low level Galileans as stupid people, people unworthy of receiving praise. They had to deal with them and deal with them forcibly. So they put them in prison. But here's the ironic situation about this whole situation. Their jealousy of these apostles actually reveals how imprisoned these leaders were to the opinions of people. Uh, We have to see this. Where there is jealousy in our heart actually reveals to us where we are looking to win the battle of the heart. So, so let me give you an example, and it's a personal example of my own life. I so desperately wanna preach a sermon that you look at me and go, wow, what a preacher. And so, so when I hear someone preach a sermon where I go, dang, that's a good sermon, the thought isn't, thank you for preaching that sermon, it's of jealousy. And you know what it reveals in my own heart? Why I'm preaching the sermon in the first place. And it reveals that I'm preaching a sermon. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. But when it does happen, it reveals that I care more about what you think of me than what you think of God. And it's imp- it reveals that I'm in prison to your opinion rather than God's. And this is exactly what these religious leaders' jealousies of these apostles reveal of them so consider your jealousy whether it's someone who comes into your work and is actually better at the job than you are and you become jealous ask yourself why am I jealous what does this reveal about me am I looking to the opinions of man as the very source and driving force behind the battle of my own heart, and I would say, indeed, you are imprisoned to the opinions of others. You see, this is what marker number one in this story teaches us: that where there is jealousy actually ironically reveals that which has imprisoned us. That's the first marker. Jealousy. But there's a second marker. We must leave jealousy. The marker titled jealousy and move to the second marker in this battle for the heart. And the second marker we come to is a marker titled power. Power. At this location, we take some time to reflect reflect on the powerful encounter between the apostles and an angel of the Lord. Stuck behind the bars of a jail that was protected by numerous guards, an angel of the Lord approaches the apostles and commands them To go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. But when the sun comes up, what we see is that the apostles are no longer behind the bars. That the angel has freed them from the prison. And once again, they are at the center of the temple doing exactly what they were commanded not to do by the very religious leaders we've just looked at. Hear these men. Are witnessing the power of God in their presence and they're responding in obedience to God rather than the authority of the religious leaders when questioned as to why they were doing it this is the exact response of the Apostles we must obey God rather than men and what's ironic about the whole story is that on the surface it appears that the men who are in the authority that they're the ones in power They have the prison, they have the guards, they have everything set up so that it would display their power, that they have the authority. But in the simple appearance of an angel of the Lord, poof! These men are back in the temple. What appears to be power is actually no power in the face of an angel of the Lord. And what this marker titled power commemorates is the fact that no no matter how much power man thinks that he has, God always has more. God is the one who has power, not man. Man tried to imprison them, but God set them free. Last summer at a neighborhood pool, a kid pushed my youngest son into the pool and he wasn't wearing floaties. And in my response, I think I held it together and cool. Like, I really did. I was like, okay, this is not good. Let's talk to this kid about how he's behaving around my little child. Of course, this little kid didn't take to my authority. And he didn't take to my uh, dadness. He didn't respect the power that I had. Now, in truth, I didn't have much power. But thankfully, this little boy's mom was watching. Oh, she was watching. And she... She had a lot more power than me. And she marched up to that boy <laughs> and sit his fanny back on the chair where it belonged. And it illustrates a powerful point about power. That which has more power is that which commands respect. In this little boy, I had no power and authority over him. And it's, it's true, I don't. But his mom did. And these disciples upon seeing the power of God displayed in them, not only in the angel, but in, in God raising Jesus from the dead, they respond by saying, we're gonna listen to the witch. that which has more power. And it doesn't matter how much power this seems to have, we're going to respond to God rather than man because God always has more power than man. When battles are being fought in our lives, when we're fighting the battle of the heart, at play is who has more power? Is it not? Yet oftentimes, this is the battle. Who do we believe has more power? The people before you or God himself? And the question is, and I think most of us would agree, That more often than not, we give power to people rather than to God. Because people are the very things that we're interacting with. People are the ones that we're seeing and responding to. And we consider people to have more power than God. But this marker, titled power, reminds us that no matter what we see or what we experience, God is always more powerful. And we have to believe that. How in the world, did the world get created? I'm not even talking about how it was. Was it created by man? Or was it created some other way? That's the one who has power. That's the one to which we say, okay, maybe this battle for the heart needs to be won and fought with that which has more power. And that's what this second marker teaches us. Who has more power? God does. So we've looked at these two markers from this battle that is waging in Acts five. We've looked at the marker titled jealousy. We've looked at the marker titled power. Let's transition now to the third marker, a marker titled anger. The third marker titled anger commemorates the reaction of the religious leaders in their response to the apostles after they had asked them why they had done what they did. Peter, of course, said, God our Father raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Upon hearing this, these leaders raged. They were so offended that these men had spoken in such a way that they wanted them dead. Once again, we have to ask the, religious, ask the why of the religious leader's emotion. Why are they angry to the point of killing these people? Now, we're not giving the answer initially. We have to look at the text to consider why they were so angry. And I believe we can deduce the answer to this when we consider the response of gamaliel who is a Pharisee in their midst his speech and his reaction his speech and their reaction to these angry leaders following it reveals to us why they're so angry let's consider gamaliel's speech the first thing that gamaliel does in his speech is he appeals to history he says men of israel take care of what you're about to do with these men because before these days thudius rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men about 400 joined him he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Here you see Gamaliel, he, he's appealing to history. He's saying, guys, we've seen what happened with these two other individuals who rose up and flamed out. We saw that. But then in his second argument, he does something similar. He appeals to God. He says in verse 38... So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So Gamaliel does two things. He appeals to history and then he appeals to God. So when we consider these two movements of his speech and that they respond in a much softer tone following his speech, what, we, what, it, what this reveals is that these religious leaders thought the apostles were spouting heresy. That they were, they, were, they were teaching something antithetical to their faith. This is what they thought. And the question for them and for us as we look at this is, were they? Was their anger legitimate? We have to look at this. Consider the argument that Gamaliel Gamaliel makes. Most of us know that heresy is determined in one way, by appeal to scripture. But where does Gamaliel go in his appeal for this heresy trial? He goes to history and to the history of man as it's worked out. This is a mistake. Heresy is never determined by the history of man churches rise and churches fall but a falling of a church does not mean that it's heretical there are churches in France that don't exist today that were not heretical they were persecuted that doesn't mean that they were bad yet this is the appeal that Gamaliel makes it's a it's a reasoning in man rather than in scriptures yet this was the very argument that convinced these leaders that indeed this wasn't heresy and that their anger was not justified and they backed up. What does it reveal? It reveals once again that these religious leaders' anger was rooted in the opinions of man rather than of God. I think the anger of the religious leader teaches us an important lesson. Emotions are a terrible indicator of truth. Emotions are a terrible indicator of truth. It's always subjective. You know, there's a debate that rages on in our society, and I'm not going in on the debate, but here's one thing that you're gonna see in all the debates in this present day and age that I think is incredibly dangerous. There's an appeal to an emotion. I feel attacked, I feel like I feel like I'm being shamed by your statement. This is a terrible indicator of truth, you realize that. Because emotions are never meant to be the indicator of truth. Yet we do it all the time. We do it in our own lives as we're trying to determine what is true. So if anger rises up in our life, we say, I'm justified in my anger. This is the way it should be, because I'm angry. That is not true. Emotions are not a good indicator of that which is truth. I would tell you there's two ways we can know what is true. The natural law or scripture. We have to appeal to one of those two. And emotions must be left out of it. But yet this is exactly what the or the, the, the religious leaders did. They appealed to the reason of man and their anger was unjustified. This is what marker number three reveals to us that their anger was unjustified. And it was unjustified because it was rooted in man rather than of God. So we've journeyed through this battle looking at marker number one titled Jealousy. We've journeyed through looking at marker number two titled Power. And we've looked at marker number three titled Anger. Finally, we come to the last marker of this text titled Rejoice. Rejoice. This final marker that we come to commemorates the attitude of the Apostles following their beating at the hands of the religious leaders. Thus, the marker is titled, Rejoice. We've read in First 41 that the apostles were rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffer to, worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. It's quite ironic. The men didn't mourn or weep or cower in fear in the midst of their persecution, but rather they rejoiced. They rejoiced amongst their beating. What is behind this? Are these men masochists? Do they rejoice in being beaten and like it? No. It has nothing to do with enjoying the physical beating that they undertook. It has everything to do with the words of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted you, per- persecuted the prophets who were before you. My guess is, as they were being beaten, these are the words that are echoing in their mind and they're rejoicing in it because of what Jesus said. Now, what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and how it connects to their response to their beating gives me two reasons why I think they're rejoicing in the beating that they took. First, their reward in heaven. The disciples are not looking to this life to find relief and comfort in the midst of the battle, but rather they're looking to find relief and comfort for the battle in the life to come. Trusting that Jesus' words are true, they understand that in time they will receive quite the reward for the suffering of his name. And this word is not based on the appearance of man liking them, it's on the word of God. And they're rejoicing that indeed, hey, we're being persecuted. That means in the life to come, we're gonna have quite the reward. It's beautiful. And it's based on what God says, not on man. And we can learn learn an important lesson from the disciples, that this desire that drives us to fight the battle is not a wrong desire, but rather, this desire to fight this battle is often wrong because of where we look to win the battle. We often look to man to find satisfaction for that attention and desire, rather than to God. But God says to us, hey, if you suffer for my name, there will be much reward for you. And the desire of your heart will be satisfied. The desire is not wrong. It's where you look to fill that desire. And these disciples are looking to Jesus. And they're finding great rejoicing in that. Oh, we can learn from their patience and their trust in God, can we not? finding relief from God and trusting his word that there will indeed be a reward for us in heaven. But secondly, not only are they rejoicing because of the reward in heaven, I think they're rejoicing because they understand that they are united to God, that the persecution that they're undergoing is a sign that God is with them and working in them and that they are his and that he is their own. I moved to Little Rock eight years ago and I knew one person when I moved here. As you can imagine, it was a very lonely time. But over time, I started to meet people and rub shoulders with people and interact with people and slowly but surely, I started to find some like, okay, I know a lot more people than just one person. And there's a restaurant not far from here in the Heights titled Burges. And for some reason, a lot of the people that I was rubbing shoulders with would go to lunch there. And one of the things that I just love about going into Burgess is that when I go, I feel like I belong in the city. It's like, ah, I'm not an outsider anymore. Like, I am from Little Rock. I belong here. And I would tell you, 90% of the times that I go into Burgess, I know someone from the city, rubbing shoulders. And I think that, that that kind of joy that I get in seeing people that I know in belonging into Little Rock is a similar feeling that the disciples are feeling here. In experiencing the persecution, they go, hey, we belong to Jesus. We are one with him and he with us. Oh, what joy this is. I mean, Jesus told us this is gonna happen and now it's happening. We're with him. We belong to him. No longer are we lonely. No longer are we worried about how does God think of us? No, he's with us. Oh, what peace it brings. We belong to God. And so in their beatings, they rejoiced because they were reminded they too belong to God. Yesterday, I was invited, um, my family and I were invited to Greer's Ferry Lake to enjoy a day on the boat with some friends. And while on the boat, I had the opportunity to learn and then participate in an activity called wake surfing. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's not quite wakeboarding, and it's not quite surfing. It's wake surfing. You get behind a boat, you hold a rope, you've got this surfboard-looking thing, your feet aren't tied in, the boat like, boat, starts off, and then you pop up, and then you're trying to surf behind the boat on its wake. I had never done this before, so it was a new adventure. Very exciting. And so um, I got in the water, got held onto the rope, had my feet on the board, the boat went, and I got up. Now, the idea with wake surfing is that you you, you let go of the rope eventually. You don't want the boat to pull you, you want the wake to push you. And I had the hardest time trying to find that sweet spot where the wake would push me rather than the boat. And so for the first four or five times, I I really struggled with with allowing the wake to push me. I, I just let the boat pull me. But that's not the purpose of this, and I would fall, and I and I and like time and time again, I would fall on my face, and I would just, you know, swallow a bunch of water and have nature's neti pot go right through my nose and have my sinuses cleaned out. But I did it finally. I found the sweet spot, and here's why. My eyes were up. You see, I had a hard time finding the spot where the wake would push you because I was so focused, eyes on the ground. I was so worried that the nose of that, wakeboard, or the, of that surfboard would go into the water and I would go flying head over heels. And, and, and when I finally found the sweet spot, my eyes were up. I was looking where I was supposed to look and I could thrive. Now, I did get a little too close to the boat. I looked down and then I ate it. But the person who was driving the boat said, Dan, I think if you want to thrive, wake surfing, you gotta keep your eyes up. And I think the same lesson applies as we looked at this battle in Acts 5. We we walked through the markers, jealousy, power, anger, rejoicing, and the common theme is that when the eyes go down on man, you eat dust. Your face goes down into the water and nature's neti pot comes and cleans out your system. And you're in the water. But when your eyes are up, you're standing and you're thriving. And that when even persecution comes to you, (laughs) rejoicing takes place. Here's the lesson. Walking through this battlefield, keep your eyes on God, not on man. Friends, keep your eyes up. As the battle wages on in your heart, keep your eyes up and you will stand. You will thrive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you for your word, how it leads us and guides us. We've looked at this story from Acts 5. And man, there's there's so much that we can learn. It is true that we often put our eyes on what what other people think of us in this battle for the desire of our hearts. Look at us, look at us. And man, do we fall flat on our face? The battle that we think we fight in our own power, oh, it consumes us. It wears us out. But your word teaches us that when we keep our eyes on you, (laughs) ironically, We thrive. Oh, Lord, would you teach us and and compel us and help us to keep our eyes on you as we fight this battle in our heart. It wages in our hearts all the time. I pray this in Jesus' name.